Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is proudly sponsored by Aviation Advertiser, Australia's largest aviation online marketplace. Now featuring aviation employment classifieds. Make buying, selling and job search easy by doing it online. Visit aviationadvertiser.com.au today. And by Jetride Australia. Be a top gun for the day. Visit jetride.com.au slash pcdu for the fastest ride in the country. Oh yeah. And by the GA8 Airvan, proudly manufactured right here in Australia by Gips Aero, gipsaero.com. Well, g'day folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 82 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. On a lovely, pleasant evening here in uh, the southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, Australia, I'm Steve Vischer and welcoming back, even though this is our second show for 2012, it's Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How are you going? It's great to be back in the uh, PCDU studio as opposed to last time when you changed the locks. Yeah, where were you? I didn't you changed didn't the Didn't you hear locks. me banging on the outside, mate? No, it's all that soundproofing I've put in here, mate. <laughs> Yeah, no, unfortunately our schedules just wouldn't allow me to be able to link up with uh, yourself and Anthony to record on the last one, but that's okay. I think it gave everyone a quite welcome break from my uh, dulcet tones. Well, speaking of uh, breaks, mate, it's been about a month uh, now since we uh, got into the studio and recorded an episode together, so uh, update us. What's been going on in the world of ballooning? Oh, mate. Uh, in short. Really <laughs> lots. We've been quite busy over the Christmas New Year break, of course. Uh, this is a peak time to be flying people, uh, a lot of people on holidays, so they've actually got time to come out midweek, uh, let alone weekends. We put on extra capacity. Uh, we've got quite a few pilots running. Uh, we're doing a lot of stuff with special shapes. Uh, these are balloons shaped like beer glasses and the nudie character and the house and all that kind of thing. So that's keeping me pretty busy running all that side of things. And of course, continuing to take on more and more of the admin side of helping out the chief pilot. Well, it sounds like you've been busy, mate. Well, coming up in this episode, we've been busy ourselves. We've been on the road to Victoria's North and we pay a visit to Mildura Airport's RAF Museum, then over to Lake Boga near Swan Hill to visit the former World War II RAF Flying Boat Repair Depot and Catalina Museum. And Peter Johnson's back. He joins us from the UK with some news of a group making a new squadron of Spitfires. But first, I'll tell you what, speaking of people who've been busy lately, it's Owen's up. G'day, Owen. G'day, guys. How are you? Very good, mate, and welcome back to the show. It's been a while since we had you on last. We tend to keep bumping into you at all these aviation events, but uh, this time we've tied you down to the studio, so welcome. Yeah, yeah, no, we um, have crossed paths, but they're yeah, not in the... Um the PCDU world, I guess, to the same extent, but uh, I guess we're all very busy, aren't we? Well, yeah. uh, I think you've been a lot busier than us, mate. Now, uh, since we, we last had you on the show, you've uh, launched a new website, owensup.com, and uh, got the blog going, and uh, mate, you are burning up the keyboards there, doing all sorts of wonderful uh, articles, mostly on aviation, but uh, even some on cricket, which impresses me, but probably not Grant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we don't really factor Grant into it, do we? There, um, <laughs> it's not no. when it comes to cricket, mate. Yeah, don't, yeah. Don't, don't write specifically for me, mate. Yeah, that'll give you an audience of one, maybe at most five in the whole universe. Yeah, no, the, the, the cricket one was a bit of variance in the fact that I, I do live at Barrel and I've been involved with the Bradman Foundation. So that was sort of a, a sidestep there. But it's fundamentally, you're quite right, it's fundamentally an aviation website and pretty much every, each and every aspect that I can tie together with it from training to commercial to just thinking about it sometimes and, and sharing that point of view. So it it's, has been a busy time, but it's grown at a rate far greater than I anticipated, to be honest. I didn't quite know that much about the internet and how many people would be searching, looking in keywording or whatever all the lingo is. And um, obviously people did find it because I think in the last 
um, oh, two or three weeks, I've had about 5,000 visitors to the website. Nice. And, and a lot of those have made queries. So I've been busy answering a lot of those queries as well. That is part of the problem when you set yourself up in the public and uh, start doing things and uh, open the gates, so to speak, is that suddenly you start getting the queries and the, the comments and everything. And there, there, there seems to be like a, you, you wind up with this obligation, this, this self-imposed obligation that you have to respond to everyone, don't you? Yeah. It, mind you, that was a genuine part of why I set it up. It was um, to answer a lot of those questions. As I, I said to Steve, when we were talking some time back, I was very fortunate in having a father who was in the industry with a, a broad background in the industry, everything from military to commercial airlines, to general aviation and charter. And I grew up with a, a mentor in the lounge room effectively. And it was easy to go and ask a question. So I, I've sort of set myself up a little bit that way, I suppose you could say. But if someone's got a question out there and, and I've got an idea about it, I, I'm more than happy to answer. I don't make myself out to be definitive or, or know it all on the subject by any stretch of the imagination. But if I can assist someone who's coming through the, the early stages of the career based on what I've been through, then I'm more than happy to help and answer back. And do you find you're getting, uh, you know, as time goes on with this website, do you find you're getting more and more of these articles, more people asking industry-specific questions? I mean, uh, it's pretty well known that you work in the airlines, so are you getting a lot of people contacting you with their eyes on the airlines or just more generally? It's very diverse. Uh, just as the, the topics I write on are diverse, I could almost say that the same ratio applies to the questions I get asked. I'm being asked, like just a short time ago, how is takeoff weight calculated? And that is fundamentally the same as you work it out for your Cherokee or your Boeing. The difference is you have a, a support team of computers and staff working in a dispatch department in an airline, whereas when you're sitting on the wing of your Cherokee, you have a sharpened pencil and a ruler. But they were after that aspect. But then you've got more general points where people are asking about, I'm thinking about going into aviation. Where did you learn to fly? Or what do you think about doing a tertiary course in aviation? Is a degree worthwhile? And in a lot of cases, it's a comment on an article I've written. I wrote one about tertiary education in aviation. I got a lot of questions there about, do you think it's worth it? So the questions are as diverse as the topics I'm writing is probably the quickest way to sum it up. And I guess, um, you know, we talk about professions and crafts and all this sort of thing. I mean, flying is a craft. I know you've talked before about your passion for the craft of flying and, and wanting to pass that on to other people, but um, writing in itself is a craft. So uh, it looks to me like you're really indulging in a second passion here of indulging in combining both those crafts together and really getting into it. Absolutely. You wouldn't do something that involves this much time and to do it properly unless it was something you enjoyed yourself. Uh, you couldn't be so selfless as to put yourself through something you didn't enjoy. And, and fundamentally, my two passions lie in writing and in aviation. And this is one mechanism that allows me to express both of those quite easily. And I feel that I'm the fortunate one to have the opportunity to do that, to be perfectly honest. So they're both very strong passions and the website and my writing and, and everything else I do gives me that opportunity to, to express that. We might actually uh, perhaps wander off into a couple of uh, interesting articles that you've done in a minute, Owen, but I wanted to talk to you about the last time I bumped into you, which uh, coincidentally was down at uh, Gibbs Aero, our wonderful sponsors down there at, uh, at Latrobe Valley Airport, and you went off and did a test flight in the GA8 air van. Can you give us a bit of a sneak peek into uh, you know, some of your findings there? Yeah, uh, the article on that and, and um, also on Gibbs Aero as an operation are, are two of the stories I was very keen to do, obviously because they're an Australian operation, but also I did a reasonable amount of bush flying when I was a young pilot. And the aircraft has always looked to me like one that has been thought out. It's been one that has got a real sense of function, a real practical aeroplane. And when I, I got down to Gips Air, I guess the sneak peek is that 
that is effectively what I found. I found an aeroplane that people had thought about how is this going to work practically, like the tailplane situated that you can get a, a utility under there to back up to a big side door to get the freight in. You're not yep. trying to work around a, a tailplane. You're not having to fold seats forward. You're not having to do this, that, the other, which when you're on your own at the back of nowhere can be a, an issue. And the overall way I'd summarize the aircraft probably is that it is a very functional aeroplane that's been well thought out with the worst case scenarios in mind, because that's what happens. You're, you're going to have these things go wrong and you are out on your own at some remote strip. But they've designed an aircraft fundamentally that minimizes the chance of that happening. It's like the utility of the sky, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a good utility of the sky. One thing I must say that when it's described that way, I tend to think of um, a tray top with a blue heeler sitting in the back. But this aircraft can also very well accommodate people yep. better than its, its comparable ones. It's got an aisle. It's got a high roof height. It's got strong, comfortable seats down the back, high back seats with uh, slightly bubbled windows for the view outside. Now, I've heard the the comparison to the utility and it does have that functional role, but it is also a very efficient people carrier. So um, it wears many hats. Yeah, and uh, Owen is obviously doing that research for an article that he'll have, uh, as he said, coming up in Australian Aviation Magazine. And, uh, you know, we mentioned that Gips Aero has, you know, helped us out in the past financially, but uh, that's actually not an advertorial there, folks. It's it's just interesting. I, I, I do like the aircraft. Owen, I really wanted to get up with you that day unfortunately time got away from me but uh, tell us about the test flight itself we've talked to you before about you know what you're looking for when you're doing a test flight in any given aircraft but uh, can you describe some of the maneuvers you put this aircraft through when you went up with their chief pilot uh, Dave Wheatland yeah well the point that you're looking for for an aircraft that's going to be doing um remote operations in a lot of cases is what is it like to land and take off? How much runway does it utilise? And also functional points, you look at what's the prop clearance? Because if you're going into an undulating strip with gibbers and elephant grass or something, you want to know that you're not going to have prop strike. So the handling you want to get is that it's got a good, stable handling to it. And also one thing I always put a lot of emphasis on is is the ability to go around. Because when you're operating at bush strips, you can often get kangaroos or something pop out in front of you or as, as I struck out in any gib river one day that uh, you got down someone to put a fence line of star pickets up across the middle of the strip, which you, you didn't realise until you sort of were, were on short, short finals with the sun in your eyes. So the ability to go around is, is a critical one. And that's not purely the performance versus weight combination, but it's also what are the trim forces like? Am I going from all set up on approach to then go around with full flap? Am I going to have to, you know, be Hercules to hold the yoke in place or not? So there's a lot of significance there on the handling in terms of the circuit handling and its ability to go around and also what it rides like for people in the back. So we we took it up at slow speed handling. We look at it in the stall because, once again, if you're operating into short strips, you're flying at reduced approach speeds. And it really does have very good handling characteristics in in the slow speed regime. So they they were the core aspects that you're looking at it. Once again, the air test, you try to look at it in the world that it's going to work in. And you're looking at an aircraft that has the ability to work in the low speed regime, operating into possibly unprepared airfields and quite probably not very long ones. And that was what the air test was centred around. Also, there's certain roles that the aircraft has where it has to just hold station above a a defined area, so it's not looking to go cross-country for any specific way. And we looked at setting power back and and slowing the aircraft down. And and it goes so slow at times, you can set it up that if you were to go any slower, you'd need a tail rotor, I'd suspect. So (laughs) it, it really is an aircraft that 
possesses function and form. The aircraft you flew was actually the one that Ken and Tim flew around the world, I believe. They've uh, rejigged it and taken the tanks out and put some seats in it, and it looks brand new. Yeah, and a new paint scheme. Yeah, you, you wouldn't pick it. You wouldn't pick it. You'd say it had just rolled out of the factory. I'll tell no. you what uh, was interesting too, uh, and I, people can look on our Facebook page, and I actually took a number of photos of uh, Dave Wheatland. They're, they're really, really enthusiastic chief pilot there uh, giving uh, Owen the walk around and uh, the full tour. Well, he gave us both the full tour, but ostensibly for Owen, I was just tagging along being annoying in the background, but uh, yeah, he's very enthusiastic, isn't he, Owen? Well, I'd have to say the whole staff there are. Everyone I encountered believes in the product, and I think that's with good reason. And that morale, you can't fake that. Everyone I, I encountered out at Gibbs Aero over that weekend was uh, very positive about it as a workplace. In fact, the day we were there was a public holiday, I believe, and there were people in there to keep the production line rolling in, in on the public holiday, and they were basically whistling while they worked. So yeah. uh, it, you can't fake that. And it must have been a bumpy old day up there. It was quite one. I remember when I left and I was watching you take off as I was driving off in my car, and uh, boy, it was windy that day. It must have been a bit bumpy up there that day. It, well, that's one thing. It, it rode it very, very well, which from a passenger point of view it is fantastic. I, I forgot that it was that bumpy, to be perfectly honest. Once I was up and flying the aircraft, I thought, gee, this does ride it. So the wing loading obviously is ideal for, the, for that sort of operation. But it was only when you got back close to the ground doing the circuit and you were looking at the drift on final and occasionally that you, you realised that the wind was blowing that much because it, it actually does ride very smoothly. I'll tell you what, uh, Dave Wheatland has a couple of times now offered me the chance to go and take it up for a spin. I've got to get around to doing that. Oh, definitely, mate. I'll come along, mate. I'll sit in the back and be an observer. Yeah, well, it could be <laughs> some progress on that this year. In fact, uh, I'm going up to start preparing to do my BFR very shortly and finally Ooh. get uh, finally get current again. I'm looking forward to it. So uh, once I can get some more uh, Cessna 172 hours under the belt, then I'm hoping the progression up to the uh, to the air van, even for that one flight, should be pretty good. Yeah, I, yeah. I do well, hear it handles a lot like a Cessna. I hope yeah, so. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a very straightforward aeroplane to fly, which is very good. In, and once again, in a lot of the operations, you're looking that it would be employed in, in terms of it would be scenic operations or, or VFR charter, you're often going to have low-time blokes flying it. So you want something that flies honestly and straightforwardly, and, and it does that. So, yes, yeah, transitioning from 172 up to something like an air van, it, no big deal. Yeah, yeah, and that's, you know, the thing about the air van is it's built for a bloke my size. I fit into it well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, i tell you what, uh, Gibbs Arrow, they've got the launch of their new model, a GA10, coming out in the next couple of months, and uh, we're certainly hoping that we can get down there with a mobile studio and uh, participate in the festivities. That should be a fun day out. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to get there as well. I think it'll be a fantastic thing to witness. i tell you what, if we can move on to your uh, one of the articles that uh, really grabbed my interest recently on your blog. It came out on the 23rd of January. It's called The Fatal Stall. Yeah. Uh, that's at owensup.com. Um, gee whiz, that's a pretty chilling video there, Owen. Uh, perhaps if you could take us through that and uh, a bit through the article, what you found uh, and what you wrote about in it. Yeah, I saw the video quite a while back, to be honest. It, what it shows is, is an aircraft that was involved in low-level operations. I believe they were... Um I don't know if they were spraying or observing for a, a type of insect that was infesting a forest, from what I understand, in a Cessna bird dog, which is a high-wing single-engine aircraft, uh, two seats, one behind the other. And they were flying along in Colorado, which is where the, the terrain is fairly high. You're a long way above sea level, so the air's thin. Middle of summer, so the air's thin. So everything was going against them in terms of performance. And the footage is, is shot by the observer in the back seat. And what occurs is effectively the terrain gently increases very subtly and the climb performance of the aircraft gets to a point where it cannot match that of the rising terrain. The chap endeavours to turn 
away from it, which when you're sitting very slow, close to the stall, obviously those with a bit of an aviation background realise that turning will um, increase the load factor and bring you even closer to the stall. And he gets into a situation where close to the ground starts to stall the aircraft and ultimately the aircraft flicks, spins and impacts the ground. Now, both both on board were killed and this film was missing for a number of years, as was the aircraft, obviously. Uh, after a moratorium of about 20 years, I think it was, the family agreed to release the footage in the hope that it would benefit other pilots to see this. And what I found from it, outside of the obvious chilling aspect of of watching a, a fatal accident from the inside, is the subtlety at which it occurred. We're all aware of big hills out there with snow-capped mountains that rear up out of clouds and that, and the, the terrain of New Guinea and places like that. But this this was fairly gentle rising terrain. And if he was distracted, we don't know the reasons why, but he got into a corner where he, he couldn't get out of it. And there were probably ways that he could have handled it in that the turn was not what you wanted to do. But it is chilling that it is so subtle but it can bite you very, very quickly, even though the development of the situation is apparently almost insignificant. How do you find stall training? I mean, in your time as an instructor, I remember when I was doing my ab initio training, um, stall scared the willies out of me. I mean, the, we went up in a 152 air about the first time I did it and we, we pulled it up and, you know, inevitably we went to drop a wing and, it, you know, when you you weren't expecting it, it, it does kind of shake you up a little. And even though it's, you know, really quite a benign manoeuvre when you're up in a training environment with an instructor, how did you find most, I mean, did you, did you have a range of reaction to stalling and some people perhaps going on and being a bit pensive to do it? I think the, the vast majority of people without adequate knowledge um, were pensive and, and had reservations about it and that's totally natural because 90% of what they have heard about it is from other students who, who had some degree of trepidation. I don't think in a general sense a lot of the time it was taught to the, the best case scenario. The military treat it uh, very seriously and most military aviators have gone right through the stall process, through the spin process and so on, whereas the incipient spin was about as far as a lot of people used to take it in the civil realm. I used to find whether a person had a high level of fear of the manoeuvre, for want of a better word, really is dependent upon the instructor and how you approach it. I always used to find that firstly, you dispel a lot of fear with knowledge. So you spend time with that person, you tell them what occurs aerodynamically, and then you lead them from that into what they're going to see out the window. And I think it's equally important that when you first introduce it, you're not showing them how you can throw the aircraft around. You make it as subtle as it can be the first time so that their brain isn't overloaded and they can take it in. I inherently would put the aircraft, slowly approach the stall, put it into the stall and hold it in the stall. If it was wanting to drop a wing, I'd just maintain level wings with rudder and just sit there with the buffet going as we're falling down and say to the student, okay, you can look here. We've got constant low airspeed, high rate of descent, wings are level. It's really not that bad. And I would speak at about that pace and I'd demonstrate that in, in that essence. So all you've got really is a high nose attitude, some airframe buffeting and a, a stable descent effectively. And then I just relax the pressure, the student would be on the controls with me, it itself recover and away we'd go. Now, where that's different from your stall training in essence is you, you're not doing that a recovery with a minimum loss of height while you're demonstrating that. But what you're doing is showing the person that a stalled aircraft there is no big drama here. And once you've got that out of the way, I tend to find they're more receptive to um, taking in what they're about to see because because fear just drains the brain at times and it shuts down 80% of it and they, they can't take in what they want. 
So I used to put a high emphasis on talking about it before we went and then demonstrating it extensively and then getting them to participate. And then you developed into the wing drop situation, the variables. And then ultimately, when, when I was a junior instructor at the Royal Aero Club of New South Wales, we, we did spin training in the aircraft. We, we didn't just do an incipient spin, there goes a drop, block it with the rudder. We, we went into fully developed spins. And I think there's a strong case for that. Yeah, I know we've spoken to Joel Haskey before uh, over there at Red Baron in, in Sydney, and he's certainly got a, a different approach to, to flying where he gets you up and doing a lot of uh, aerobatic manoeuvres very early on. Do you think that's something that perhaps should be looked at in the syllabus? Yeah, I, I think it's one way about it. There's always the compromise between people who, who want to do that and people who really don't and, and the cost factor, obviously, to do it that way. There's obviously going to be a higher cost incurred because there's going to be more hours involved. So you're going to get sections of the industry who say, we can't afford to get an aircraft that has the ability to do that. We can't afford to try and get students to, to come in. And that's where the military has the advantage is that's their syllabus. Their aircraft are all capable and their instructors are all competent in the skill. To maintain a fleet, a level of instructors to instruct that way is obviously a higher cost. And every time a cost comes into the industry, there's, there's obviously a, a backlash to it. So I think there's merit in it, definitely. But I think there's um, probably a middle ground where stalling is more than something that is just sort of looked at in this 1.1 session that puts the wind up people and then they might do one in their restricted tests and never look at it again. Well, that's yeah. that's the reason I ask because I know that, I mean, I did my first solo on uh, April 1st, 1990, and I reckon probably for the first half dozen solo flights I did out into the Moorabbin training area, you know, stalling, forget about it. I'm just going to beetle around. And I guess, you know, I mean, I was only a young fella back then and if I was approaching it now as a 40-year-old, I'm sure sure I would do it, uh, look at it differently. But, you know, back then, you know, I'd had those those negative experiences, at least in my mind, and I sort of thought, well, I might just leave that alone for a while. But I realise now that that's, you know, that's a recipe for not making me as skilled as I could have been, should have been really. Well, what it does in, in a lot of ways, it's not so much the stall, the idea is to avoid the stall. And if you can recognise that through stick position and feel of the controls, there's enough warning symptoms coming through your aeroplane before you ever really get close to it. But if you only go and do the one session where you you're putting it right into the stall. And, and as you hear from the instructor, the okay, the, we've got less responsive controls, high nose attitude, etc. You get this opinion that everything is a straight ahead nose high stall. And, and as my instructor said to me, it can stall at any attitude and at any airspeed, but only one angle of attack. And that is uh, something that you really don't get a look at in the, in the base syllabus. Yeah, I, I had the, um, the the classic go out and do a couple of them. And half of me was going, okay, I've got to concentrate. I've got to do this right. The other half of me just wanted to put my hands in the air and go, wee, as we went over the top. You know, it's yeah. that whole roller coaster thing. I, I loved it. But, uh, you know, so there's balancing those things out. But, you know, I actually said to my instructor at one point, I wanted to go out and do it again because I didn't think I really felt comfortable knowing about it. It was one thing just to have a couple thrown at me, but you know, I really wanted to get used to it and get used to flying along with the stall horn going. Well, one and, of the things yeah. you, you can often do is, is for the low speed handling, you get people flying in a low speed configuration and then just, okay, ease the back pressure on and they get, there's a stall, relax the yeah. back pressure. And it, you, you're flying that realm where you are close to the stall, but it's, it's nothing to be feared of, but the goal is to recognize it well in advance that just a second I feel the controls are getting lighter I'm getting uh, slow here this is something I've got to be aware of but it can also be a, a very dynamic store where you're pulling high G and, and all of a sudden it comes on you quite rapidly but once again it's only a relaxing of the back pressure often as Anthony Crichton Brown I've heard talking about it with stick position and that and you just unload just unload that's all it yeah. is 
it's quite common. It just means, oh, I've messed up the manoeuvre and most of the time you feel it, (laughs) oh, here it comes and and just relax that pressure. And aerobatic pilots are flying on that edge all the time. But just in the most basic sense, getting back to the initial point of that video, recognise that I'm running out of performance. I'm getting slow. The terrain's coming up to meet me. I've got full throttle here. There aren't too many options of getting out of this corner now and the corner is getting smaller and smaller. And, and stall training, it, it teaches you to recognise the conventional stall, but it doesn't really give you enough foundation at times to, to recognise when you're getting slow, when you're running out of performance in, in the real world scenario. I guess there's other lessons to learn there with regard to multitasking. I mean, there seem to be a lot of other, I guess, human factors involved in that one there where the stall sort of appeared to have crept up on them while they were, you know, concentrating on other things. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very rare that one thing can be nailed as the cause to an accident. I'm sure he was busy navigating, looking out for whatever his his aerial agricultural task was. He probably had an element of the the person in the backseat might have been asking questions. We don't know a number of these things. So his workload could well have been up and it's crept up on him and that's what I found very valid about this video was the subtlety was the subtlety and the fact that that ever-present vigilance needs to be maintained and I I feel sorry for the guy and I've heard a lot of people just go oh it never happened to me oh but that's a that's a very bold thing to say but because there but for the grace of God go I and and the thing the thing that we should all take is look and say this did catch someone it could catch me. How can I keep away from it? And I'm sure that's what the families want people to take away from this this footage. It's also that whole visual thing, like as the terrain is gently sloping up, not in a big cliff or anything or a major mountain or anything, it's that gently sloping up terrain. And subconsciously, as you're concentrating on other things, you're just pulling the stick back and back to keep that terrain. And it's, it's like, oh, I must be going down because my horizon is coming up. So you keep pulling back and back as you, you're going up. As far as he was concerned, probably... He, he just felt he was in a, a gentle climb as the train was coming up, but the airspeed was eroding as well and he, yeah. he had full throttle on. There was no performance left in the aeroplane and no margin off the terrain to convert altitude into airspeed effectively. So yep. it caught him. But I don't want to get into the diagnosis or even a judgment of it. No. What, what I'd like is people to look at that and just take in the subtlety, how things can sneak up on you. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes to that article. You can also find it on Owen's uh, Facebook page, which is Owen's Up Author, as opposed to Owen's uh, personal Facebook page. So Owen's Up Author. Uh, Owen, I hope you've got a few more uh, followers over there on the Facebook page of late. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm up to about 55 or something, but that I'd say 40 of those have occurred within about the last week. So, <laughs> Well, we hope we can um, fix that. It, it seems to be a bit of an exponential thing, uh, it, it, but with the followers, with, with everything, I, I'm, I'm learning as well with all of this social networking, et cetera. But for me, it's, it's a mechanism just to get the word out there because that's all I'm doing with it. I'm just writing the stories. And in a lot of cases, I'm just putting them out there for people to assess for themselves and take something away for it and, or contact me for a bit of feedback. I, I'm not trying to pass judgment or, or offer definitive analysis. It's just, let's talk about aviation. And some of them are technical, some of them are training, some of them are just thinking about it. The other day I was reflecting on people I know who'd been lost in aviation uh, and some of them are just the absolute joy of flight. I I reflected in one of them on a wonderful flight I had in a steerman over Wollongong. So it's not all all serious and and brain teasing. Some of it's just good old fun. And and, and I would really like to encourage you to do more cricket articles just for Grant's benefit. (laughs) Hey, 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 speaking of cricket, speaking of cricket, thanks to the reference to cricket that Owen put forward. I now have in my reading pile and reasonably close to the top as well, Beyond Reasonable Doubt, The Birthplace of the Ashes by Joy Munns. 
<laughs> that is you know, outstanding. I, I have been to Sunbury and I have been in that building. I was actually way back in my past as a DJ. Uh, friends were getting married there and I was DJing for them. So there you go. I've been to the grounds. I've been to the building and uh, now I'm going to read the book. I wonder yeah, we could almost make you an Australian now. Oh, don't go too far. I may have had the odd warm beer and cold pie, but geez, let's not push it too far, mate. <laughs> oh, and uh, I don't know, you, you always seem to have a, a, you know, a book full of uh, projects on the go. Are there any other things that you're, you're doing for the blog or anything else that you can talk about right now? There's a few things on the go. With with the blog, obviously, it's a major undertaking at the moment, partly because I'm learning the process. It takes me a while to, to get into the administration page and, and work from there. So that's, that's my major focus at the moment. As always, I'm writing articles for Australian Aviation and a few other magazines, but predominantly Australian Aviation. In terms of other projects, I've put together the visuals for the um, DVD of Flying Around Australia in there and back, and I've just got to lay some soundtrack and uh, some narrative under that. So I'd like to think that I'll have that out sometime in the next handful of months. I'll say what I said at the top of this segment that uh, you're one of the bit more busy people we know and uh, that just confirms it mate but uh, I tell you what if you want to uh, kick back would you like to stick around we've uh, got plenty more to come that sounds great I'll be here fantastic mate Paul uh, we hope you'll stick around with us too folks we'll be right back after this Wanted to be a Top Gun? Looking for the ultimate heart-pumping experience? JetRide gives you that and more. With your personally tailored flight and individual gift pack, JetRide will make your dreams come true. At up to 900 k's an hour in a Soviet-era L-39, this is the jet fighter thrill of a lifetime. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1-300-554-876. Nothing is impossible. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. Well, howdy. I'm baggage handler Chuck Armstrong from JuniorFly.com. When I'm not sending your luggage donation to Siberia, I'm listening to Stephen Grant from Plane Crazy Down Under. I know they could use a donation. I think I'll send them your bags. I'm James Williams from Podcasters Emporium, and you're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, now proudly part of the Lifestyle Pod Network. Okay, well, we're up here in Mildura on the border of, uh, well, I guess, uh, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, and uh, we've come to the airport, and I'm here with Ken Wright here at this uh, wonderful museum that talks about the two OTU training squadron that existed here back in the Second World War, and uh, Ken's going to tell us a bit about the history of the base here. Ken, welcome. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks very much, Steve. Actually, what happened was that uh, when Japan entered the war in December 1941, the powers that be realised that we would need up to a dozen squadrons of fighter aircraft up north. So they established an operational training unit here in Mildura, which opened on the 12th of May 1942. And uh, pilots came here from service flying training schools or from staff flying at various places. They did a few weeks course on uh, uh, wearaways, 
some of them hadn't flown for a while, so it was necessary to get their air legs back again. Uh, then they would graduate generally onto a six weeks course on a Kitty Hawk fighter aircraft. 1,247 airmen completed that course by the end of the war. By that time, of course, they, they were training on Mustangs, but the Kitty Hawks were still flying in the squadrons up north. 1,240 airmen actually completed the training six successfully. Up to half some courses were scrubbed or uh, sent off to other flying that didn't require perhaps the same amount of skill. Uh, but all in all, by the time the end of the war came, nearly all the fighter pilots in the 12 squadrons up north in the islands and up to Borneo and Tarakon can actually had been trained here at Mildura. And often when they finished a tour of duty up there, they would come back here to Mildura as instructors. There's only one seat in a kitty hawk, so the instructor has to do all his instructing from the ground, or perhaps he may go up in an aircraft, another aircraft, and explain to trainee pilots over the over the uh, radio what they should do. That would be a very steep learning curve, I imagine, getting into an aircraft that uh, I guess at the time, and I guess even now, would be quite high performance, and uh, stepping into it without an instructor must have been quite daunting for many people. It was. It was just like going off a push bike into a high-powered high motorbike. <laughs> How would you can describe a conversion training? Is that the idea? So they would have done right. basic training well, down at Point Cook or something? Well, the training was to teach them to fly in the manner in which is required up at a squadron. That is, generally, early in the war, there was quite a bit of uh, air-to-air fighting, dogfighting, they call it. But by the end of the war, it was mainly our pilots air-to-ground. In other words, they would attack Japanese encampments along the coast of northern New Guinea and the various islands. Now that was very dangerous too, and quite a few of those, uh, they were generally uh, very strongly defended by guns, and uh, quite a few of the uh, aircraft were shot down. And sadly, the Japanese didn't have enough food for themselves, let alone for prisoners, and they didn't like being attacked either. So no, if one of our men came down, who was more than likely to be beheaded. It's a sobering thought, isn't it, when you think about... And I notice as we're walking through some of the, the rooms that we've got here, and I might get you to describe some of the rooms in a minute, but the, the walls here are adorned with pictures of aircrew and, and so many people that have come through the school here, and they're such young men, men and women, I guess. It's, um, you know, sitting here in 2012 and thinking back to that time, it's hard to imagine in a way, but um, some of these people had such short lives. One of the fighter pilots that was killed training here was uh, Sergeant Stokes. He was only 18 years old. Now, I think of my 18-year-old grandson... And I couldn't imagine him doing something like Sergeant Stokes was doing. As I said, the training was very, very dangerous. It was very realistic. And uh, no less than 52 of those pilots were killed in that training in various accidents, mid-air collisions. Many of them were killed in forced landings. There were many engine failures of the Kitty Hawks. Many of the trainees managed to make a forced landing and, and or else parachute out and save their lives. But unfortunately, a large number of them were also killed. At one stage, they were being killed in the forced landing and the powers that be were wondering what the problem was. And the shoulder straps were faulty and uh, they used to snap. A pilot was lurched forward and hit his forehead on the, on the gun sight. At the, at the front of the uh, cockpit. Not a mark on him, but sadly lost his life. 
I'm just thinking about the location of this base, and, and it's a long. I mean, it was a, it's a long drive these days to get up here yeah. from uh, from Melbourne. But I imagine back in those times, uh, I guess coming up on the train would have taken a, quite a long way. I guess it's obvious in many respects to think about the airspace and how it would have been at that time. Is that why it was chosen up here because it was such a remote area? There are a number of reasons. One was that the local council had been wise enough to purchase the land that this aerodrome is on. Previously, the airport was at 11th Street, Mildura, on a clay plan because if it rained, it was out of action. Now, the Air Force couldn't have anything like that. So the land was all there. The, the Air Force purchased the land. We had the advantage of being able to fly pretty well every day of the year, whereas in many of I know I did my fly, flying in Canada during the winter, and in the morning you'd have to have a snowplough go along the runways and clear the snow off. Although I must say that generally, even though it was freezing cold, the skies were clear. In fact, they were so clear, the sun reflecting off the snow. We had to, we had to wear sunglasses. Now, we'd never heard of sunglasses, but uh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's what we had to do there. But here, you could fly every day of the year pretty well. Also, the ground was level. Uh, there were no obstacles that they would collide in. I think, uh, uh, really, I can't think of anything that was a danger to them when they were flying at low level, that is, under, under a 1,000 feet. Yeah. So the distance was no problem because most of the travelling was done by flying, if, particularly with the, the ground crew had to make do with the, uh, uh, with the train. But um, air crew generally flew to and fro to where they had to go and whatnot. And the other thing about Mildura is that it's virtually strategically situated in the, in the centre of Australia and it's, it's handy to Adelaide, handy to Melbourne and it's handy to Sydney. It's interesting actually when you come up here all the way from Melbourne we're actually closer to Adelaide than we are to Melbourne up here. Yeah, well when I joined the Air Force I looked forward to going to Summers but no, I, I finished up in uh, Victor Harbour in South Australia because Adelaide is 100 miles closer to Mildura than Melbourne is. Yeah. Now tell us a bit about the building that we're in. I believe this was a headquarters building at the time? This was the headquarters of the uh, RAAF and uh, uh, for those... Uh, of the uh, non-commissioned people and other ranks. Uh, it wasn't a good thing to come into this building because generally if you did, you're on a charge or worse still, you're on a court-martial. But this headquarters building was due to be pulled down. It was one of the last two buildings left of the hundreds that were here when it was a thriving Air Force base. Uh, the big Bellman ha- hangar that is down there adjacent to the terminal building was the other one that's still standing. This building had a lot of asbestos in the ceiling, but we were fortunate enough to receive a grant of $50,000 from the state government, and we provided a lot of voluntary labour. Uh, we had the Magnificent Seven. They were builders and plumbers and people like that that volunteered their time to restore this building. We had some buildings that were very clever in utilising the space here to the best advantage, which as you walk around, you, you, you can see. This was about um, or 12, 13 years ago that we actually established a museum here, museum here in this building. Relatives of the fighter pilots uh, that served here and particularly the ones who lost their lives here, they're actually uh, in tears here when they see the way that we have... Uh, the memorials we've erected here to their, their loved ones, uh, both inside this... Uh, this uh, museum, also at the uh, National Museum that we've got here outside, that has got a memorial to the 52 men that died here, to the 58 district men that died serving in the Air Force, and for 288 men 
that was still ours after they trained here. I must say that for eight months, the Central Gunnery School was here as well. So we had quite a few navigators and uh, air gunners trained here at that time. Now, uh, Ken, tell us a bit about yourself now. I, I noticed, and you actually pointed out when we went around and had a look at um, some of the galleries here that you're uh, also featured here. Tell us about your, your history in the Royal Australian Air Force. Well, when I was 14, the divorce started and had the war lasted as long as it was World War I, I realised that I probably would miss out on service. Uh, but I did join the Air Training Corps. I was very keen on being a pilot. Air Training Corps uh, personnel had the opportunity of coming out here to the number two OTU and having a, a, a flight in a, in a wear-away, which I did. I was even more keen to join the Air Force. Only one in 20 that wanted to be a pilot actually became a pilot. 20% of them didn't pass the medal exam. I was lucky enough to, uh, to pass that. But it was September 1943 when I turned 18. Four days later, I was uh, uh, initiated in the Air Force uh, at Adelaide uh, by my uncle, actually. Went to Victor Harbour, did three months training there. After two months, uh, we went before a board who decided whether we'd be pilots, air go- gunners or navigators. They decided I was to be a pilot. Did another month that uh, initial training. Then on to Parafield for uh, three months on Tiger Moss, which was very, very exciting. And then one of our, we divided into halves. After elementary flying, half went to fly single-engine aircraft. The other half went to fly multi-engine aircraft. Half went to Canada, half trained in Australia. I was to go to Manila, but one of the draft to Canada had to drop out because he'd had a taxiing accident and uh, there was an inquiry and one of the people to give evidence was away. So they said, all right, right, you're going to Canada. So off I, off I went to Canada. We got to Canada eventually uh, on the Mariposa, flying across the Pacific Ocean uh, through the uh, the west the islands of the West Indies. Uh, had a German submarine find a, a fire torpedo at us there. Uh, safely arrived in uh, Boston. The band was playing there. We puffed out our chests, and, <laughs> and then and then we found that there were two hundred Australian war brides going to uh, join their husbands' families. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's who the band was playing for. We got on a train at uh, Boston. Went all the way across Canada back to Edmonton. They told us there that our training had been delayed, and because we were horrified, we eventually started our course in October. At Calgary. Now, that was a good place to be because it was a peacetime station. Uh, Brick buildings, very comfortable. We were extremely well looked after, extremely well fed. Incidentally, the Canadians were very generous to us, very friendly. Uh, It made many friends. Even uh, I still correspond with them and uh, visit them occasionally. But we did a shortened course, five months we did, and we graduated in uh, late March of 1945. The powers of be decided that uh, there was no point in sending us over to uh, England because the war was winding up there. So they sent us back to fight the Wiley Jap. took six weeks to get back to Australia and as we went past Brisbane, the Brisbane boys were rubbing their hands, but no, we went past there, past Sydney, past Melbourne, past Adelaide, all the way to uh, Fremantle. Oh. We waited there for two weeks to get a train back and then eventually got back home. And uh, of course they said, well, look, there's no hope of you boys going into operations, so we'll put you on to useful duties, same as what we'd been doing in Canada. Uh, what one of the things I did in Canada was the uh, 
One of the sad jobs we're doing was that uh, there are a number of Air Force stations in Western Canada and we were in a funeral party and our, it was our duty to go to funerals of all the boys, Canadians, British, Australian, that had been killed in accidents all around Western Canada and we would go along there and we'd have a firing party and, and so on. But as I say, that was a sad job to do. But when you're in the Air Force, you do what you know what you're asked to do. What you're told to do, yeah. So I suppose I, I was very unlucky in that uh, I didn't get into operations, but uh, I was lucky that I was destroyed. But even so, uh, there were 11 pilots that graduated from the 32 that were on our flight at Victor Harbour. No less than three of them were killed in accidents. Three out of 11, which was a casualty rate of the Western Front in World War One. And I guess, um, you know, back at the time when uh, technology was, was really moving ahead and sometimes that, that um, maybe moves too far ahead sometimes and, and catches yeah. people out that way, amongst actual, other reasons. Yes, in actual fact, one third of the fatalities in the RAAF were actually from accidents and not from operations. Ken, um, post-war, did you remain active in flying, obviously? And I'm still flying. I right. still have my licence. So I'm very fortunate to be able to pass the, uh, the medical. I think I've got... Uh, when did I make my first solo? Uh, January 1944. I've been flying since that time. So it's for about 60 years. Right. Mm. And what are you flying uh, up here these days? Oh, I've only been flying a, a, a boomerang. Uh, most enjoyable flying I had was uh, in a Cessna 210. I, happened to, I was known as Victoria's Flying Parliamentarian. I used to fly from here to Bendigo in less than an hour and at various places in the electorate uh, and uh, the, being able to fly the Cesta was very uh, profitable time-wise uh, and uh, the people that I had to meet, say I'd, I might land at Birchett, people, the local council might want to show me something they say, well, look, would you mind, you've got an aeroplane, would you mind taking some of our councillors up and our engineer up to just have a look at this problem? I said, right, no problem at all. So up we'd go and we'd have a look at it from the air. Uh, they'd explain their problem in no, no time. And, of course, uh, my main uh, duty as a member, member of Parliament was to rectify problems that my constituents had with Lands Department, Water Commission and various government departments. And, you know, I kept... Uh, on fairly good terms with all the powers that be and uh, uh, I had a lot of success, thankfully, doing those things. But being able to fly was uh, very helpful because I got twice as far and half the distance. Now here at the museum, obviously, you said the uh, the Kitty Hawk, I guess um, we know that as the P-40. That's right. Yep. But, um, Do you have much to do with the boys from tomorrow? Do they, they bring theirs over here very yes, often? Yes, I've been over to tomorrow and I think when we had an air show here, they, they flew their aircraft uh, over... It's a wonderful museum here, some fantastic history here, and I'd really uh, recommend to all our listeners, if you're coming up this way to Mildura, make sure you stop into the airport and stop in here. Ken, I know I caught you at very short notice, and I very much appreciate you uh, spending some time with us this morning. It's been a pleasure, Steve, and uh, uh, any visitors to our museum, which is open 9.30 to 12.30 on Tuesdays, Fridays and Sundays. Uh, You will be made very welcome here. Okay, well, we're on our uh, big road trip here back from Mildura and we've uh, come through Swan Hill and happened past Lake Boga and we're here with uh, Noel Britag and uh, he's going to tell us all about the wonderful uh, Catalina Museum they've got here. Right, well, the, the museum is here because uh, during uh, the Second World War, from August 1942 through to 1946, Lake Boga was the site of Flying Boat Repair Depot Number 1. And Flying Boat Repair Depot Number 1 originally was based at Lake Macquarie in Newcastle uh, but was transferred here 
simply because it was safer here. People often say, well, I have a base here when it was so far away from where the war uh, ostensibly was. But in fact, um, the war was right down the east coast of Australia and people, most people don't realise that. And in fact, there were submarines operated right down the east coast of Australia and those Japanese I-class submarines were equipped with a small aircraft. So having flying boats sitting on Lake Macquarie disabled, they would have been pretty vulnerable to attack, believe it or not, from submarines. <laughs> aircraft operating on submarines. It is quite amazing. Most people think about um, when they think of the war coming to Australia, they think of Darwin and up around Broome and that sort of area. But right. uh, yeah, I guess it's not foremost in a lot of people's minds. Well, about 450 Australian seamen were killed off the east coast of Australia in various attacks by Japanese. So it's a, you know, a Japanese submarine. So it was a significant part of the war. But of course, you can imagine at the time that there was a real feeling of vulnerability about not only what had happened at uh, the first attacks on Darwin, and of course, most people think well, there was only one or two attacks on Darwin, and in fact, there were like about 68 attacks on Darwin yep. over an 18 month period. And of course, there was also the attacks on Broome, or the attack on, or no, attacks on Broome, two attacks on Broome. And also, there were attacks right across the top end on variously uh, Aboriginal missions at the time. Were attacked, Townsville was bombed, uh, Newcastle itself was uh, artillery, there was artillery uh, from a submarine on, uh, on Newcastle and on Sydney. So at the time there was a real feeling of vulnerability. So putting a base basically in the middle of nowhere at Lake Boga on a nice round lake so you could fly in and out from any direction, didn't matter where the wind was. The lake was roughly two mile in diameter so it was big enough. Highway beside it and of course the railway line beside it. Yep. So everything was here and it was safe. The base when it was first built was kept secret from the world. Yes. Um, when did they start constructing? and how long did it take to construct it? It took about six months and they, and they started in February 1942 and it was finished by August 1942. Well, finished in the sense of all the buildings were up and going, etc. And uh, not only uh, RAF aircraft came in here but also other Allied aircraft as well. That's right. The Dutch uh, operated uh, Catalinas and they also operated Dornias, uh, Dornia DA-24s. And we actually have uh, part of the fuselage of a DO-24 here. Uh, well, actually not here at the museum, but we do have it in the area and we're, we're storing that uh, so we can bring it to the museum. That's interesting in itself, actually, because the Dornier is a German aircraft. That's right. And the Dutch operated uh, quite a number of those. Uh, nine of those uh, escaped to Australia. Three of those were destroyed at Broome and six more eventually found their way here. And of course, being German aircraft, of course they were metric, everything was metric, and of course you couldn't you know, even get a screw to, to fit. Um, so there was a lot of maintenance issues involved obviously with that. And they bought the aircraft here. One of the modifications they did was to put Pratt & Whitney's uh, in them. They took out the three 1,000 horsepower BMWs and put in three 850 horsepower Pratt & Whitney's. And that was, of course, obviously an attempt to standardise them and make them more serviceable. But they spent a lot of time here, those uh, those doorways. Apparently a very nice aircraft to fly, but they had all the issues of maintenance. Yeah, probably over-engineered like most German Uh, things. Well, you see, the the most flying boats, when when you say that, most flying boats aren't able to take off and land in really heavy weather. And the Dorniers were very capable of handling the roughest of weather. So, yes, they were were over-engineered all right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I reckon with 3,000 horsepower hanging off them, they would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's actually, if you go on the web and you actually look up Dornier DA-24s and if you persist at it you'll actually find uh, some video of a DA-24 it's a, a Nazi video a DA-24 taking off in some really rough seas and the water's coming up over the engines and it's amazing footage yep. and it eventually takes yep. off yeah <laughs> so they were really capable of handling whereas a Catalina or something like that just wouldn't have had a hope yeah yeah, yeah. would have broken up and what about the Americans though? obviously they would yes, have had the a big Americans presence here had, uh, the Americans had cats um, Catalinas and uh, they, they, they arrived fairly early in the piece. And uh, the big issue with the Americans apparently was always finding their way here, but they, they did. 
Um, but there were also other aircraft came here. There were the, uh, the Sunderland flying boats that Australia had as well. Um, they came here for major repairs. Um, there were the Qantas C-class flying boats, which were the predecessor to the Sunderlands. They were the uh, most aircraft start their life as military aircraft. Well, they did in those days. Yeah and uh, then become civilian aircraft. Well, in the case of the Sunderlands, it was the other way around. The C-class flying boats were the, the first, and then they were modified into the Sunderlands. But they came here as well. Now, Qantas, in fact, they actually chose this lake as a base for their aircraft, and they actually built a base where the caravan park is in Lake Boga. But that was never used because, in fact, the RAAF took over their aircraft and so the uh, C-class flying boats ended up flying around with RAAF randals on them. Right. So they came here, as Qantas originally intended, but they came here as, as uh, to a different base. For a different space. purpose. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. They were being used as military aircraft. Yeah. Being used as transport aircraft. Now, uh, moving on through the war, obviously the base um, was surplus to requirements uh, once the war had finished, so uh, did it survive much longer after World no, War II? No, By the time of end of 1946, start of 47, I think it was it was gone. There were for many years Catalinas lined up on either side of the highway here because the Catalinas were supplied by the United States as part of the Lend-Lease scheme, which basically meant they were supplied to the Australian government very cheaply. They consolidated the manufacturer of the, of the Catalinas, of course, didn't want those aircraft uh, back in the market. And so the aircraft were uh, lined up alongside the highway. Could be bought quite cheaply, but they were all theoretically disabled. Right. And so they, in theory, they couldn't be flown. But in actual fact, from what I understand, they were very easy to, uh, to, you know, to repair to a state where you could fly them. So for a thousand pound, a thousand quid, you'd get a, a perfectly good Catalina, probably with a couple of motors thrown in, a lot of spare parts. And if you had someone who knew what they were doing, you could get that aircraft flying in. Yeah. But a lot of the aircraft were, of course, in, in less lesser states than that. They were, you know, uh, some with uh, no wings and all that sort of thing. And uh, they were used for all sorts of things. They turned into caravans, turned into um, houseboats. Uh, one was Shit. used as a caravan, in effect a caravan behind a dredge up in New South Wales. Good when, Lord. They, when they were building the Collie irrigation scheme, they needed effectively a caravan to pull behind the dredge. So the dredge was, uh, if you can imagine, had water behind it, but as it's making the canal in front of it, uh, the water follows it, you see. So, they needed something they could tow behind the dredge, which was floating in the water. <laughs> and so Catalina had a, a kitchen. It's got a galley. Being, yeah. a, being a boat that flies, it's got a galley. It's got a, a head, a toilet, yeah. and, of course, it's got bunks. Perfect. So it was perfect. Now, our friends at Haas obviously operate the, the Blackout, yes. the surviving one. Uh, yeah. Do you have much to do with those guys? Yes, we do. They've, uh, they come down here reasonably regularly now. We've been able to supply them with bits and pieces uh, for their cat, uh, you know, parts that we come across from time to time in various ways. And they've, uh, you know, come down to help us paint the aircraft and give us, uh, you know, advice, technical advice, etc. So, yes, they've been very helpful with us and we really got to, you know, we, we love to see the fact that their aircraft flies. Ours will never fly again, yeah. but it's great to see their aircraft. It was here uh, last February, nearly a year ago now. They had uh, training for their pilots down here. Um, oh, okay. Because, uh, as I said before, it's a nice round lake in the middle of nowhere, and uh, because of that, you don't have to worry about which way you're coming in to take off the land. Well, it's only so appropriate that they train here, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Now, uh, walking in here into this hangar, and I should tell our listeners, we're standing inside a pristine uh, museum hangar here with uh, lovely painted floors and a uh, very impressive-looking uh, Catalina here that we'll talk about in a minute. Tell us about the process, the inception for this museum, and how you got it up and running. The aircraft 
came out of the bush, in fact. It's, um, uh, it was one of the aircraft, as I said before, that would have been lined up along the highway, but this one would have been in a much worse condition than the ones I talked about before that you could make fly. It uh, probably was bought by a farmer who had the intention of turning it into a, a shed, because after the war you couldn't get sheet metal. Uh, there was rashing in at the time. And of course, an aircraft of this size, there's a lot of sheet metal there. And uh, of course, there's a lot of wire. So if you wanted to uh, you know, put uh, electric lights in the shed, well, there was lots of wire as well. So they could probably pick up a Hulk for something like 50 quid, maybe 100 quid. And you know, the idea was to go out and build a shed. Well, of course, being an aircraft, even though it's only made out of very thin aluminium, it's incredibly strong because of all the bracing. So what would have happened is you would have taken it out there somehow on the back of a truck or whatever, got out there and attacked it with a cold chisel and found, see, this is a lot stronger than I thought. Yeah. And so, like this aircraft, like many aircraft, just sat under a tree out in the bush. And eventually it was uh, found. There was a, a, a people active in the community here who were interested in, you know, making sure that people knew the history of Lake Boga as a, as a base. And they uh, heard from the local dog catcher, apparently, that there was uh, this Catalina sitting out in the farm. And uh, the wings were separated from the fuselage. And so it was bought in in that form and put together in the park. And for many years it sat out in the park and of course was subjected to all the elements. And then, uh, of course, over many years, uh, there were many attempts made to get uh, various governments, both federal and state, and of course local government assistance to, in fact, put up a, a, a hangar over the top of it. And uh, eventually that was, uh, as part of the economic stimulus plan, the Rudd government agreed to uh, supply the money, but also the state government uh, assisted, and also the local government here, Swan Hill Council, assisted right. in giving us funds for that. So. Uh, we've now got a home for the cat and because we've got a home for the cat you know, we've spent a lot of time in the last six months in particular uh, restoring the cat, uh, painting it, making it look like it should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For many years it, uh, you know, we were quite, uh, well not so much ashamed that we really couldn't do much about it but, but you know, we, we had a great concern the fact that it was deteriorating. And you've got some wonderful memorabilia here and uh, you know my family and I have just sat down and watched a wonderful video presentation with some uh, period uh, seating inside your little theatre out there so it's a very impressive setup here. It does create quite a good atmosphere doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it actually uh, unlike uh, modern theatre seating those ones are actually comfortable. So. <laughs> And uh, this Catalina here is uh, A2430, or is it, is it actually A2430, or is it painted up to look like A2430? No, it is sort of A2430. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll explain what I mean by that. A2430 itself has an interesting history. A2430, and this is in large part A2430, uh, is made up of two aircraft. Um, A2430, the fuselage, comes from a Dutch aircraft. And uh, the main plane, the wing, comes off an American aircraft. And the Americans put the two aircraft together in Surabaya in Indonesia in February 1942. So obviously two aircraft have been badly shot up by the Japanese and uh, the Americans had the facilities there at the base, probably a Dutch base. And um, anyway, they put the two aircraft together to form what was then, well, what became A2430. So I flew around mainly out of Exmouth following that for about six months and then in August 1942, for some reason it was transferred from the US Air Force to the RAAF and became A2430. Part of the aircraft, actually the, the, the middle section of the aircraft is in fact off a, off a different aircraft again. And I, 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 can't, I can't actually tell you what that aircraft was other than the fact that instead of it being a PBY-5, it's actually a PBY-4. So, and that's the section what we, we refer to as the tower where the flight engineers are, the basic centre section of the aircraft. And that came about simply because, as I said earlier, these aircraft after the war were built with the idea of being chopped up. 
and someone had let, you know, attacked that part of the, of the original aircraft with an axe. And right. so, and as luck would have it, we did have a, centre, a central section off a PBY-4, as I say, and bring typical American technology, standardised, put it all together, away you go. Yep. So, so we cheated to that extent. But, but apart from that, it's A2430. Okay, no, well, I really appreciate you letting us uh, come in and have a look today. It's uh, just off the uh, Murray Valley Highway on the way to uh, Swan Hill or on the way to Kerrang, depending on which way you're coming from. It's just up here in northern Victoria. And I'd say to our listeners, if you want to come in, it's uh, $10 for an adult and $20 for a family. Great value and uh, certainly highly recommended. Thank you very much. I always Welcome to From Up Here to Down There. Or is it? down there to up here. Anyway, I'm Peter Johnson and this is my occasional segment for the show with a European perspective. Listener Tim Arnott sent me a link to a really interesting story of a man trying to create a squadron of Spitfires, that most venerable British icon created by Supermarine still flies today, but these wartime rebuilds will not last forever. Grant and Steve wouldn't let me get away with sitting in my studio and providing them with the next segment, so I had to get in my ute and trudge off to Enstone Airfield, where I met Paul Fowler. Paul is the driving force behind the Spitfire Club, and intends to bring back a squadron of Spitfire aircraft back into the skies of Britain. Paul, welcome to the programme. Oh, delighted to be here. Now, there were lots of Australian and New Zealander pilots who flew the aircraft, particularly in the Second World War. What's going on here? with this new squadron? Well, what I wanted to do was to keep pilots flying. One of one of the things that is sort of global, but even at a local level we see it, is pilots get their pilot's licence, they fly around for a couple of years and then they let it lapse. And asking these people why, it came to me that it was the, the challenge of learning to fly evaporates once you've got the licence. I mean, it's such a great thing to do. You're going... You know, you've got these milestones to get to and you get to them and then you move on to the next one. And it's a constant challenge. Once you've got your license, you, you think, oh, great, I can take everybody flying. You do that. Where do you go from there? The Spitfire project was born out of I've got to find something that will keep that challenge going. Right. OK. And why did you choose the Spitfire? The Spitfire is possibly the most iconic aircraft ever designed, a beautiful piece of kit. I don't know of anybody that doesn't go slightly gooey when you hear the roar of a Merlin engine overhead. It's, it, it is a almost a primeval feeling as it flies over. Yeah, I don't know anyone who doesn't like the sound of a Merlin engine. So how does the Spitfire project actually work? What we've done is we've expanded it slightly. In fact, we've expanded it enormously. The The idea is to build 12 of the Supermarine uh, kits designed by Mike O'Sullivan, a, a, a very great Australian, and we will then operate them as a, as a squadron and we will do displays, formation displays, which is a huge challenge. Flying close to other aeroplanes is a serious challenge, but it's a lot of fun. It's hard work, but again, it's keeping this challenge going. And it occurred to me that there's an awful lot of people who are not pilots, not engineers, who have an enormous interest in flying or aeroplanes or things connected with aeroplanes. So creating the squadron, we will have both the air side and the ground side. So we'll have military vehicle enthusiasts who will transport the HQ 
where the aeroplanes then fly into and they're attended to by the ground crews, the mechanics, the fitters, the radio operators, cooks, guards, all this kind of stuff. And they will recreate, essentially, a squadron on the move post D-Day. And so we're looking for some volunteers, are we here? We're looking for volunteers, we're looking for more pilots, to pilot builders to come in and buy shares in these aeroplanes. It's, it's a self-funding operation. We, we don't receive any kind of um, support from anywhere else. Each pilot who wishes to fly the aeroplane needs to buy a share in it. And we start off at a 20th, so 20 people in a group, which will cost about £11,000, and a 12th share, which is about £17,000. It's still a lot of money, but it's a lot less than buying a whole aeroplane and building it yourself. And uh, we talk about building it. These are coming in kit form. That's right. The uh, the Supermarine Company developed this kit. Uh, Mike designed a 90% scale kit, which is the, the newest iteration of this kit. Primarily, he wanted a kit that could be built by one person and, more importantly, operated by one person. You know, a lot of people say, well, why, didn't, why did we not go for a 100% scale? The Spitfire is a, a big aeroplane. You know, uh, they weighed up to three tons in some of the, the later marks were even heavier than that. So you need a ground crew. It's not an aeroplane that you can pull out the hangar on your own. Right, um, and what's the actual model uh, that, uh, that you're building for the squadron? Uh, this is the Mark 26B, which is a slightly longer, slightly wider one, and it has a, the the new power plant which is a, a V6 250 horsepower it's an Isuzu truck engine uh, there is the option for the V8 but that's not approved in the UK as yet the V6 is just about to receive approval and will it sound like the Merlin it sounds very close uh, the V8 sounds like a very very nice V8 but the V6 I would say it's pretty damn close um, what about the performance of uh, this aircraft? If you did a sort of ratio, scale ratio, that this is nominally 90% as opposed to the thing, it, it, it actually scales quite nicely. Top speed over 200 miles an hour, full scale one was over 300 miles an hour. What's involved in the assembly and the construction of the Spitfire? It's a, a fast build kit, so part of the aircraft is actually jigged and temporary riveted which you then complete the riveting on uh, wings empennage cockpit canopy all that kind of stuff we we drill prepare paint dimple put together take apart put together take apart it's it's a con it's a very complicated construction kit but the guys are getting a lot of fun out of it there is you know it's a serious challenge to put one of these together and can we go and have a look at one absolutely um kit 73 is down in the hangar um it's a an old world war ii hangar let's go and have a look then so paul we're in the hangar now and we're looking at a partially completed airframe what have we actually got here well what we've got is the main fuselage with the center section completed that that is the uh, the main spar is connected to the fuselage. It's a two-part spar system. The spar is connected to the main fuselage and then the wings are connected to that section. Uh, the gear is on and 
um, we've virtually completed all the empennage which is the horizontal stabiliser, the fin and the rudder. And it's got all the sleek lines, you can see the elements of the Spitfire, the uh, cylindrical shape of the wings, the wheels uh, and the actual fuselage itself. Um, how long has it taken them to get this far and what's involved in completing it? Well we've, we, this kit arrived as a partially built kit uh, in September of last year, that's 2011, and we've been working on it pretty consistently since and I would say at the moment we're about 70% of the way there which generally means we've got 70% to go. And of course the question everyone wants to ask is when will we see this in the air? Well I'm pretty confident that if we carry on at this speed we will have it flying in March of this year. Now Paul this isn't just about uh, assembling uh, an aircraft for people to fly and to be involved in it's quite a serious side to some of the supporting activities that can be undertaken with this can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah that, I mean the Spitfire is an, an iconic aeroplane and it has an immediate draw and one of the things that we would like to do is to use that drawing capacity to do some good work for charity. Uh, we are supporting the British Legion uh, in a big way with this particular aeroplane and the rest of the aeroplanes. Can't wait to see this aircraft complete, Paul. Uh, nor can I. <laughs> so, Paul, if somebody would like to get involved in uh, the project, possibly building another airframe for the squadron or potentially for themselves, how would they go about doing that? Well, they can contact um, spitfireclub.co.uk. Uh, there are two further kits which are on standby, and currently we're looking for another uh, about another 10 to 12 people to come in as uh, shareholder members. But you can also get involved as a helper. Now, obviously, we need the kits for you to help on, so we need the people to buy the shares so that we can order the kits. But as the kits uh, come online... Uh, there'll be other opportunities to get involved with other elements of the squadron, the ground crews, the engineers. Um, so we will need some people who know about engines and systems fairly shortly. And with a flying debut possibly in the spring of this year, what are the next steps for the project uh, for the rest of the year? Well, the idea is as the aeroplanes are completed, they will then start training the pilots we have a sort of development scheme from the basic pilots license private pilots license here you need to have at least 25 hours of tailwheel time before you can even climb into the the Spitfire uh, so we have a J3 Cub specifically for that once pilots have completed 20 hours in that they'll move on to a chipmunk uh, which has got a very similar feel and look to the Spitfire that is from the cockpit once those are completed and they are happy then they will move on to the Spitfire. So as a as an ordinary bloke I can actually get involved in this project I can support the project in some way if somebody does want to get involved uh, can offer their services uh, or wants to be a part of the project how do they go about it? Well they can register online at spitfireclub.co.uk and once you're registered we will keep you in contact and you have the opportunity then to say look I'd really like to be a shareholder I'd like to work on the airframe I'd, I'd like to be a living history player I'd, I'd like to be a military of England if you can imagine what a squadron needs we need you 
This is really exciting, Paul. Thanks very much for joining us on the show. You're very welcome, and I'm pleased you came in. I hope you enjoyed our view from up here to down there. Or is it down there to up here? Anyway, my name's Peter Johnson, and if you really like the segment, then like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash xtpmedia. And if you're really crazy enough to want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Nascot Hornet. Take off for the adventure of a lifetime with Ozair Services and the Turidan Flying School, where you can live out your passion and learn to fly. Book a personalised charter flight to Lake Eyre, Flinders and King Island or anywhere in Australia. Or enjoy an adventure flight for yourself or as a gift with scenic and aerobatic flights in the classic Tiger Moth on weekends. Take flight with Ozair Services at the Turidan Flying School. Go to ozairservices.com.au. Hi, this is Max Flight. Besides producing the Airplane Geeks podcast, I run the 30,000 Feet Aviation Directory. If you have a look at the Aviation Podcast page, you'll find links to literally dozens of aviation podcasts. Go have a look and listen to a few. Then come back here and get the real deal at Plane Crazy Down Under. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com And welcome back, folks. I tell you what, guys, a fascinating couple of uh, interviews there, and uh, it was really interesting to me to get around to uh, some of these little uh, memorials to Royal Australian Air Force units and uh, and different type of aircraft around. I must admit, I'd not been to Mildura since I was four years old, and uh, to get up there and, and find this rather small uh, RAF museum dedicated to uh, the two OTU unit that was up there uh, in World War Two that was that was really interesting, and some of the memorabilia they've got in there is fascinating, even though they don't have any aircraft. Yeah, mate, it's always great to uh, go and have a look at how things were and see what's been preserved. Uh, you've got a range of options from uh, the War Memorial in Canberra through to museums like the one at Moorabbin. And yeah, it's not uncommon to find these uh, little places where something's been preserved. I remember uh, traveling from uh, Brisbane out to Mount Isa and uh, I think we're in Oakey area and there was a little museum there and they had a uh, jet engine, one of the early ones like you'd find on a meteor and one of the early Whittle centrifugal flow engines with the combustion chambers around the outside and uh, they were slowly rebuilding it. And it was just there at a museum. It was quite fascinating. They had a few other aviation bits there, but that was way back in the 80s. I just remember seeing that and being amazed. They had all sorts of, of things there about their town's contribution to the war and also just generally what they had um, managed to collect. Oh, and I'd be willing to bet that uh, you've been to the uh, the Army uh, Air Museum up there at Oki. Yeah, I have been. Uh, one of my favourite pastimes, actually, is frequenting these museums. And you're quite right, Stephen, that they, they vary from the smaller range, like you strike at the OTUs at uh, Mildura, right through to extensive ones like Bull Creek in Perth, etc., and all stops in between. But the one at Oakey actually has a um, an Oster parked in it that my father was on board that crashed near Canberra back in about 1951, just before he went to Korea. So I had a special purpose in going up there to see that one. But it, it's a fascinating background of Army aviation, really, because it starts with the Army cooperative role in aircraft such as the Oster, where they flew in uh, support of, of artillery positions, etc., through the Vietnam era, where they had Cessna 180s, etc., and Bell 
47 helicopters onto the modern day. So it, it is a full range and, and there's a lot of these museums out there and I, I, um, I make a point of going to them. So it's probably one of my weaknesses. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good weakness to have, mate. And I tell you what, even listening to that segment there that Peter Johnson's done uh, and, and even thinking back to the last episode uh, where Anthony Simmons was up there at Duxford, I mean, uh, you know, I can imagine, I guess, in your travels with previous employers, you've probably even been across to other ones around the world. I mean, it seems to me, I, I don't know about you guys, but World War One aircraft don't do a lot for me, actually. But World War Two aircraft, I just I just love them. It's a shame that people had to shoot at them, and it's a shame that they were designed to do what they what they had to do. But uh, they were some wonderful aircraft, and the, the advances in technology over such a short space of time, it just fascinates me. Oh, mate, you don't want to really uh, say that about World War One anywhere near Dan and the guys, because don't forget, there's an amazing restoration projects and uh, replica construction projects at Vintage Aviator and uh, at Masterton, I believe it is, in the um, northern part of the South Island. Yeah, I know, I know that, mate. I just, I don't but, know. They're just well, too I'll, slow. I'll convert you across, Steve. If yeah, you mate. get to the Australian War Memorial, go into their hall there and um, they have, Peter Jackson put it together uh-huh. as World War One aviation buff, as, as Grant's are heart in Fursey knows, and he's done a, a Hollywood-level production of the um, Australian Flying Corps on the Western Front to bring that realism of these early generation fighters in action and the people up close and personal. And uh, I, I vouch that if you watch that for about five minutes, you'll be a convert, Steve. Okay, well, any, <laughs> any excuse. And I, I realise, Aaron, that I'm talking to a former Tiger Moth owner, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know it's, 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 it almost uh, disqualifies me from claiming to be an airplane geek. I know, I just... Uh, maybe well, they don't... Mind you, mind you, with open cockpits, there isn't a whole lot of glamour in sunburn, windburn and snotty noses. Well. Um, <laughs> and, and it's a amazing if you uh, get hit by a raindrop at 80 knots it, it does smart yes. so um, <laughs> every part of the romance has its bitter side I suspect but the, the World War II aircraft certainly they, they have a, a majesty about them but their parents those first war biplanes they, they have their own special magic oh, too I yeah. think Look, I, I remember a few Avalon air shows back I was working tarmac and we had the guys in from uh, from the USA and they had bought a um, triplane as a camel also a uh, replica of the first aircraft to land on a ship that we saw another variant of and when we were at Oshkosh and um, a French one and I wound up being crew chief for the pilot of the French one helping coordinate the guys and uh, go through the start routine which was great you know we got to call out contact and all that kind of stuff and this was was the early days this is what these guys went up flying in and it was rags, strings and wire mate it was you know rags, strings and wire the scary thing I found the first time I ever witnessed uh, these World War 1 aircraft with their rotary engines they basically run them on off they blurt the first time i heard i thought a high engine failure (laughs) (laughs) i still think that now when i hear them (laughs) but but it's actually operations normal and you think the torque of this this spinning engine that they had to fly that their minimal performance and then getting the power to and from the mags they they were remarkable individuals and then you read bert hinkler's uh story about his time with the royal naval air service in world war one and these guys went up over fifteen thousand feet in these aircraft freezing they they were freezing and 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 they couldn't breathe (laughs) and so you come back and i guess you know flying across the world in an avro avian was probably a little bit of a a leisure cruise compared to some of the stuff they did in world war (laughs) one so and we all know that flying an avian from England to Australia would have been a tremendous task. So, yeah, it's in a different way, but I can totally appreciate how you have a a favourite era, but 
boy, uh, I'm probably a bit biased because everything from about Otto Lilienthal on or even Icarus <laughs> on, I've got a bit of a hankering for. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Well, that, that should get me some hate mail anyway at any rate, I reckon. Well, oh, well. Just send that to Grant at Playing Crazy Down at the, <laughs> hey, the, the, one, the one I love, though, is uh, you can get this shirt which says pilots looking down on people since 1903. <laughs> and I just start laughing when I read it because I'm like, no, 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 no. Balloon pilots or balloonatics looking down on people since 1758. Well, there you go. Oh, sorry, 1783. Hey, Grant, did anybody that. get a photo of that? Oh, yeah, well, we've already had that argument about Icarus, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, speaking of these museums, though, and, and speaking of World War II aircraft, i tell you what, it, it's mind-blowing to go into this this little out-of-the-way museum up there at Lake Boga. It's it's not a big place. It's a beautiful lake, I might add, if you're ever up that way, folks. Uh, you know, certainly stop in there. If you're into boating and stuff, it'd be an idyllic location. But, uh, you know, as Noel said in the, uh, in the interview there, this particular Catalina sat outside in the open air for a long, long time and even after it was restored and uh, was uh, subject to the elements but you know fortunately thanks to that government grant they've been able to uh, build this wonderful hangar over the top of it and around it and um, they've got a lot of memorabilia in, in there as well uh, and the other thing I like about it is they've got uh, a little World War II themed picture theatre in there with a lovely flat screen TV that shows a, a 25 minute video about uh, you know what, what the base was all about and how it came to be and, and what happened to it in the end so a really fascinating place. The only thing is that neither of these museums have websites so uh, you'll have to do some googling. We'll put uh, some of the links we could find in there. Uh, the one at Mildura you can find uh, pretty well at mildurairport.com.au. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to mention too, guys, is that uh, Ken Wright from the uh, 2OTU Museum up there has also written a book, which he uh, was good enough to give me a signed copy of, which I really appreciate. It's called The Sky Was Their Battlefield by Ken McKenzie Wright. Uh, haven't had a chance to read through it completely yet, but uh, what I have read of it, it's uh, fascinating. It doesn't only talk about Ken Wright and his exploits, but uh, the, you know the exploits of many, many characters that, uh, that went through that training school and remember that they went through there, did a lot of their basic fighter training and went off to fly other aircraft such as Spitfires and the like. So well, there's a lot of history that went through there in a short space of time at Mildura. Uh, I think next time I'm going up ballooning in Mildura, I'll have to drop in because I wouldn't mind getting a uh, copy of that book. Sounds like definitely one worthwhile buying. It's interesting that you talk about the Lake Boga and the Catalina and he actually in that interview mentions the Dorniers. And mm. I recall um, some time ago, you can still see the wreckage of those at low tide off Broome. And uh, when I was flying charter up there many years ago, I actually took off at Broome and flew over the wrecks of, of the Dorniers that were attacked that time when uh, the Japanese made the strike. And, and similarly, in terms of facilities that still exist, you're quite right. There's a lot of them that are almost subtly put away. I was up at Rathmines doing research on the New South Wales Central Coast, and it was a major Catalina base in World War II. And there's a museum in the RSL, but the RSL was the officer's mess in World War II. So it's a, a white weatherboard building that's been preserved for that purpose. But as you walk around, you suddenly recognise just a second the scout hall, and you look and there's a little plaque and that was the movie theatre for the base during World War II and there's a, a huge shed on the, the waterfront and you see this ramp and that was actually the maintenance facility. So as you said with Mildura, if you probe in some of these places, it's not always obvious. They don't always have websites because generally they're running on enthusiasm and not a lot of funding and the volunteers do a fantastic job. But if you probe just that little bit deeper, you'd be amazed at where you can find links to, to the past with a real living feel to them. And there's still some of the veterans there to talk to you, as you, you saw with Ken. Oh, definitely. It's great stuff. Well, mate, uh, Steve, you mentioned earlier about you know, Lake Boga being good for boating. And uh, there's a great way to combine aviation with boating, and that's called the Seaplane Association of Australia. And, uh, mate, they're having a splash-in. You've heard of fly-ins and everything. Well, with Seaplane Pilots Association of Australia, they have splash-ins, and they're going to be having one at uh, Lake Boga uh, in April this year. And with luck, we might be able to get ourselves along there and have some uh, watery fun, buddy. Sounds great. In fact, we need to find somebody that has a seaplane 
plane down here that's going. I'm only that would be awesome. I, I, we'd better find two actually, just uh, for the uh, main max takeoff weight. Yeah, max takeoff <laughs> weight and the uh, recording desk. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> well, like a lot of fun. And uh, you know, from here in Melbourne, it's about a three-hour drive. So uh, yeah, we can get up there by hook or by crook. Mm, it's on the 21st and 22nd of April. Planes start arriving on the Friday, and uh, on the Saturday night, there's going to be a dinner at the museum or somewhere in town uh, with John Bertrand, the skipper of Australia too, from the um, America's Cup race back in 1983. Wow. Yeah, he'll be a guest speaker there. So uh, yeah, it's going to be if you if you're interested in seaplanes or uh, uh, want to meet some seaplane pilots and check out what it's like, come on down. Uh, yeah, April 21st to 22nd at uh, Lake Boga. And I think that's going to be definitely a lot of fun. I've, I've It's not just because my dad used to fly Sunderlands when he started with the Air Force, but uh, I've, I don't know, I've just always really loved an aircraft that can land on water. Uh, my dream is to have an amphibian and a floating hull amphibian and be able to land on water or land. It would be interesting. Uh, Owen, have you had much experience with seaplanes? No, I haven't had much at all, actually. Like Grant, it's one thing that I, I'd find absolutely fascinating. I've had a couple of rides in them, but that's about the extent of it. It's it's something that I'll put on the bucket list for sure. Yeah. Bucket list, I like that. But bucket list. So bucket list was no pun intended when you're talking about seaplanes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, boom, boom. Oh, yeah. boom, boom. Yeah. I haven't got the soundboard loaded tonight. Links in the show notes to uh, all of those things and especially to the uh, the Seaplane Association's uh, splashing. I'll tell you what, that sounds like a lot of fun. Just wanted to touch quickly on Peter Johnson's excellent uh, segment there from up here to down there. Now, uh, not far from uh, where I live is uh, Tyab Airfield where they have a couple of these uh, scaled uh, World War II replica aircraft. A scaled Mustang, I think uh, one of our friends flies that grant? Yes, that's right. Uh, that would be Jim Wickham at his uh, Wicko's World Hangar. He's got a couple of them. Um, I believe he's made a few of them and uh, sold them, I think. But he's definitely got two, one of which has an amazing mural down the side of Merlin the Magician. Uh, <laughs> flying with, I believe it's a V8 Chev engine in it. Yes. Absolutely sounds amazing. Uh, it's a 350 yeah, Chev, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I think that is. It's a 350 Chev. Sounds about right. It's definitely a, a kick-ass V8 engine and it's got a great sound. Uh, you know, nothing like a real Merlin and all that, but uh, still good enough and he does a pretty good display with that aircraft has a lot of fun with it and so yeah he's got the two of those I, i'm not sure if if anyone's got any of the um supermarine scale uh spitfire kits that uh, peter was talking about there they started here in australia up in queensland and i believe they've now gone to the usa to broaden out and make sales into the u.s market where there's uh, more people wanting to buy them than there are here but amazing little aircraft and according to those who have flown them they say and have flown the real spitfires they say that it does carry a lot of the spitfires beauty, grace, and vices with it. Yeah, it's certainly a spectacular aircraft. And I can remember uh, Jim Wickham. Remember that time, Grant, that we were up watching Matt Hall there at Shepparton Airfield yep. a couple of years back, and uh, Jim came by in, in his uh, in his replica Mustang and did a flyby. And from a distance, you, you really can't tell, actually. From a distance. Yeah. You know, it comes down, it's nice and fast, it's got those sleek lines, it just looks great. And even, you know, the 350 Chev's quite a sizable engine, it sounded pretty cool as well, I must say. Oh, yeah, when we're up there uh, for Namurka's Show Us Your Wheels, uh, the, the, the rev heads, the car rev heads at the um, exhibition got a real good kick, knowing it was a 357 Chev. In the- so uh, thanks once again to Peter for that. You can find Peter's website at xtpmedia.co.uk and uh, the really cool thing about that segment is that uh, Peter picked up that subject material from a listener, uh, from a bit of listener feedback a suggestion from one of our listeners here and uh, at the airplane geeks podcast so uh, that is fantastic that's what new media is all about folks so if you have ideas uh, any part of the world you like <laughs> send them into us and we'll make sure that uh, they get off to our to our various correspondents you know we've got them all over the globe now grant i know we're working it mate it's uh, it's great it's look i've got to say it's absolutely wonderful when people decide they want to uh, contribute to the show and we're happy to have contributions sent in we'll give them a listen and put them on the show and uh, with luck you might be able to come back and get some more yep can't guarantee we'll get 
to all of them, or at least not as quickly as uh, as you'd like, or even as we'd like. But uh, we do our best. <laughs> okay, well, it might be a new year, but I tell you what, uh, some people just never stop working. In fact, it sounds like the postie right here. Oh, he's he's here early. It's not yet midnight. Yeah, boy, must be that new union agreement they've got going on at Australia Post there, Grant. Well, I think so. Unbelievable. Well, I tell you what, it's been a while since we've done listener mail and. I even have some real paper to shake at the microphone just to make it sound real. Wow, man, you have prepared. Boy, I tell you what, I've got all the follies going here today, mate. <laughs> Let's kick it off with an email we got uh, back on January 12th from Howard McClenahan entitled PCDU, I'm Hooked. Well, congratulations. That's a fantastic. <laughs> we congratulate you, Howard, on your good taste. <laughs> Meanwhile, Owen pauses to adjust his accoutrements. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hooked. <laughs> so Howard just uh, wrote in here to say that he stumbled across our podcast recently and he says he's very impressed. Uh, liked the work on the QF32 grounding. Incidentally, I noticed on 60 Minutes on Channel 9 recently they had uh, another uh, thing on the QF32 incident. So um, I wonder, I must watch that and see if it was as detailed as uh, Richard Woodward gave to us as an explanation. But anyway, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, if it's anything like the one they ran previously, if it was a repeat of that, it is quite detailed and pretty impressive. Okay, all right. I'll give them some credit. I suppose. And it's got video. Yes, well, we, we can't top that. You can't you can't watch the video while you're driving or mowing the lawns, mate. Anyway, uh, Howard, we want to thank you for our writing, and we're glad you hooked on it, mate. And as I said in a reply, I think um, well, we hope you don't find a cure or an, an antidote for being hooked on uh, on this sort of addiction. I think it's something that you should embrace. I agree. It sounds good. But, uh, mate, there was something that uh, Howard raised, which was he was looking at, uh, into the whole ANSET demise, and he was asking if we were going to do a, a show just on ANSET. And as I pointed out to him, we've uh, had a chat with Owen, here and uh, also with uh, Deb Laurie about their time in ANSET but uh, I think that's a pretty good idea. I think we should do a, uh, a whole episode on, on what happened with ANSET and Owen, do you think that would be something you'd be involved in to talk about what it was like for you being there at the very end? Yeah, no, no that'd be fine guys. I um, Actually I, I remember on the fifth anniversary I had to write an article for a magazine on five years since ANSET collapsed and it seemed about 18 minutes later I had to write the 10 year anniversary one last year. <laughs> Hard to um, believe, isn't it? So, so I'm doing it in five year intervals it, it doesn't doesn't get any less painless though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, I know Ben Sandilands has written a few good articles on it uh, recently, looking back at the ANSET demise. Uh, so I was thinking perhaps yourself and Ben and maybe Deb and see if there's a couple other folks we can get on to talk about it from various angles. Yeah, sure. And no, I'd be happy to have a chat about that. It was a, a great place to work. Oh, and if I recall back to episode 13 when we first uh, met you, you, you described getting the news. I think you said you were sitting on the Champs-Élysées uh, eating a baguette or something when the news came in. <laughs> no, no, that was when I first uh, got in into uh, international operations with the job I got after uh, ANSET. I, I was sitting there. I thought, well, yeah, I've been out of work. I was in Centrelink about you know three weeks ago, and now here I am sitting on the Champs-Élysées having a croissant. So, <laughs> you know, if, if you'd lose your job, there's, there's worst place stands up to end up here. So, so it, it wasn't a bad recovery for me. Yes. The ups and downs of the airline pilot. Of, of all pilots, mate, it's it's one of, one of the characteristics of the industry. Yeah, lose, yeah. lose your job, yeah. see the world. Yeah, yeah, lose your job, see the world. See the world, then lose your job. <laughs> Well, moving on to another one of our listeners who uh, has been very enthusiastic, and we really appreciate this, in suggesting lots of uh, stories for us uh, recently. That's Gary Clarkson. Gary, we really appreciate you uh, sending in all these uh, suggestions. Uh, Too many to mention here, but uh, also, Grant, he had some uh, comments there on uh, Class D airspace. Uh, That's right, mate. I think he's giving you a run for for your money to uh, see who's going to actually come up with the most load us up with work. Uh, You you keep saying you're good at getting us work to do, especially me, but uh, he's done pretty well. Yeah, he's talking about there's a new 
new operator, it looks like, down at uh, Moorabbin Airport there called Melbourne Aviation. Now, uh, Gary, we have been in contact with Melbourne Aviation and we, we hope to have them on in the next month or two to talk about what they're doing down there. So there's one we can cross off the list. Grant, have you got made a tick on your list there? Oh, well, I've added it to the uh, project ideas that we need to bring up. So it's uh, towards the top of the list. So it keeps reminding us to uh, go see Melbourne Aviation. And uh, actually, uh, Gary just sent one in a couple of days ago, another one talking about uh, one that he's found about the Outback Air Race, which is at outbackairrace.com.au. Now, I had, uh, uh, perhaps this is a bit remiss of me, but I'd not heard of that. So that's uh, something we absolutely, Grant, put that right on the top of the list. Oh, I think that's definitely one for uh, bringing Kathy into as well. Yeah, oh, and uh, actually the Outback Air Race looks like they're uh, doing some fundraising there for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. So uh, that's a common theme for you. Yeah, yeah. I think the last one they had was 2000 and... Well, I remember there was one in 2009, I'm pretty sure. They may well had another one since. It's a, a very worthwhile um, charity, obviously, but a, a good way to raise funds as well. Now, they've been uh, reasonably active over the years, the Outback Air Race. Well, that's another one, uh, Grant. Yeah, absolutely. Put that on the top of the list, mate. See, listeners, how quickly I collate work for Grant to do. Yeah, hmm. thanks. <laughs> You're as bad as my employer. Uh. <laughs> Now, one of my uh, many work colleagues out there in the uh, the wonderful rail system here in Melbourne is Justin Sarder. And every time I bump into Justin Sarder in the corridor, he says, mate, mate, did you get the email I sent you? I go, no, Justin, I didn't get the email. Well, finally, he sent us two. So I want to do a bit of a shout out there to Justin Sarder for uh, sending us one about the 747 wing house, the ultimate crash pad. That looks pretty awesome. It's over in uh, oh, yeah. California. And uh, also he sent one, uh, which we'll put a link in the show notes to, to some, uh, some, well, it says here, graffitied World War II military planes, but uh, looks like some DC-3s, Grant, that have been painted up pretty fantastically. There's a lot of variety in the aircraft. It's uh, not just World War II. There's some uh, earlier ones, like one looks like it might be a uh, Beach 18 or a uh, Lockheed, one of the early Lockheed Electras, but definitely one is a DC-3 and very intense paint schemes on them. A lot of work, a lot of intricate detail and so on. And yeah, not your average graffiti, mate, that's for sure. Yeah, well, I guess, uh, you know, working on the rail system, we see a lot of graffiti, unfortunately. So. <laughs> but this is, this is actually useful. It looks quite good. So it uh, looks like the, these aircraft in the boneyard in uh, Tucson, Arizona. But uh, yeah, we want to thank Justin. He always likes to point out these things to me when he finds them in the, the various odd websites that he finds himself having a look at. So uh, we'll put a link to the show notes there. Uh, some really creative uh, work there. It's a pity uh, some more of these graffiti people couldn't use their skills for goodness and niceness, to quote Maxwell Smart. <laughs> I told you not to tell me that, Chief. Okay, and moving on here uh, now, a great email that we got from uh, Chris Barry. Now, you may remember a few episodes back we spoke to Chris Barry. He's a uh, teacher there at Brentwood Secondary College, my former high school way back in the dark old ages. And it's still standing, folks. Yep. Well, uh, Chris sent us an email the other day to tell us that uh, he's progressed the flying program on there. And of course, the school year here in uh, Victoria has just kicked off. Great news here that they have, in fact, secured a $100,000 grant from the government to continue aviation studies. So, uh, oh, and I tell you what, he's doing a great job with mentoring those young kids. And uh, he, he was telling me just the other day when I was talking to him that uh, not only is the aviation studies coming up, but it's having a positive effect on all their other subjects as well. Absolutely. I, I think he deserves top marks for that himself. He, uh, I can only imagine the paperwork he'd have to go through and the hoops he'd have to jump through to get a grant of that significance. So the effort he's put in above and beyond to establish that for the kids is just fantastic. The concept in, on its own is, is just a wonderful idea, but to go the extra yards to get that sort of government funding, the guy must be working 28 hours a day, I reckon. Well, he's doing a great job and um, having had the privilege to be there and interview him and some of the students there at the school last year talking about their enthusiasm. I tell you what, mate, you can see it in their face and that's that's what we want. And, you know, the other thing that he's talking about there is, is not only encouraging people to have an interest in flying, it's maintenance and 
and all the other uh, very important aspects that go around the aviation industry. You know, with the technical schools being closed down here in Victoria for many years, it's um, it's, it's probably a school that's disappearing. So it's very, very important that we encourage young people to look at all aspects of aviation, uh, maintenance, uh, administration, as well as flying. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's often overlooked that point. And, and when I did a piece on tertiary education and degrees, it's not purely the piloting skills, is it? They're the probably the, the known end of the wedge, but they are really the thin end of the wedge. The infrastructure of dispatch officers, engineers, and that, to put an aeroplane in the air, it's a very complex task. And I remember being at uh, Duxford in England once, and I was talking to some chaps who were restoring a Spitfire, and I said, oh, I guess the days of these aircraft will ultimately come to the end. They'll be too expensive to insure. And they all went, no, 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 no. They said, there'll always be people with enough money to insure them and to fly them. But they said, the real challenge will be to find people with the skills to keep them in the air. Yeah, And I, I, ha- I must admit that caught me off guard. I, I always thought it was going to be a fiscal uh, hurdle that ultimately grounded some of these classic aeroplanes. But they said, no, just finding the people who have the woodworking skills and the technical skills will be the thing that could well limit their future. And um, yeah. that's right across the board that people who do the hard yards and don't get the recognition in aviation. And that's great that his course is taking all of those people into account. Do you know, I mean, we're down here in Victoria, obviously, you're up there in New South Wales. Do you do you see, do you know of any similar sort of programs that might be going on up there? I believe there have been courses. I couldn't nominate where they are or if they're current, but I think quite a while back, I remember Bankstown Grammar School did have some aviation studies and, and I, I do think there are other schools that do offer those options. Uh, I think it's a great idea to get that level of education in nice and early into the aviation sphere, as we said, in, in all realms, not just piloting. I'll tell you what, you know, if memory serves, I, I seem to remember being over at uh, Red Bull in Perth and, and bumping into someone there from an aviation high school. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Uh, it's not leaping out at me, but I... There's, look, there's I one in that, Queensland. Yeah, I know there's I know there's all sorts of stuff going on around the place. And don't forget our friends out at TVSA in um, Bacchus Marsh who have gone through all the hoops when we were chatting with uh, Peter Dow and uh, Avalon Airshow. And they'd just gone through all the hoops to get vet fee help so that uh, people could uh, do a full commercial license and things like that without having to put down as much money and then pay it off once they had a job. Full credit to Chris Barry. It must have been a huge amount of work to get that up and congratulations to him and the staff at Brentwood Secondary College. And uh, I did point out to Chris uh, the other day when I was talking that in order to get from Brentwood Secondary College to their airfield down there at uh, Turretum where they do the flying, they've got to come right past the front door of the PCDU studio. So we're hoping to get Chris in here. We're going to uh, hijack him off the highway one of these days and get him in here again to have a chat about it. We're looking forward to that. Excellent. Okay, moving on to shout-outs. Now, uh, we've got a few shout-outs here, uh, a couple of uh, good news stories and one a little bit uh, sad, so we'll, we'll, we might actually just cover that one first. And uh, we want to just uh, offer our sympathies to our friend uh, Stephen Frischling from the Flying with Fish blog over there in the, the US. So you may remember Steve Frischling's had some uh, some interesting battles with the TSA. Uh, unfortunately, uh, his father passed away during the week, and uh, we just want to offer our sympathies to uh, Steve Frischling. He's a very hard-working person, very sincere guy, and um, I know he's uh, really having a rough time of it at the moment. So I uh, hope things get better for you uh, coming uh, in, up into the new year, Steve. But uh, yeah, really sad news there on the passing of his father. Indeed. Uh, moving on here to some good news stories. And uh, we want to shout out to our friend over there in the uh, defence uh, media area, Ben Wickham. Uh, ben uh, quite often gets onto our Facebook page and uh, leaves links and uh, helps us out with uh, all sorts of information that we need. Well, he's just recently announced on Facebook, in fact, that uh, he's become engaged to get married. So uh, yeah, good on you, Ben. Yeah, well done, Ben. And uh, yeah, don't worry, you'll be back and uh, putting up comments and uh, posting on Facebook in ways that will make me jealous once again, uh, usually related to going on aircraft carriers and things like that. Yeah, that's actually, you know, it's a wonder we even speak to Ben at all, really. Well, there is always that. <laughs> Why do I feel like this is the Waldorf and Stadler, you know? Yeah. Woo-hoo. 
yes, great, woo, yeah, boo, no, actually, boo, no. <laughs> He's terrible. Yeah, so congratulations to Ben, and that's uh, that's great news, mate, and we uh, we certainly wish uh, Ben and his uh, now fiancé all the best for the future. And uh, speaking of the future, it looks like we've got a new member of My Transponder coming to us in uh, about nine months from now. Uh, a big shout-out to our friend over there in the US, Rod Rakick, uh, once again on Facebook and on every other social media outlet that you could find, including My Transponder, I guess. <laughs> He's announced that uh, his lovely wife, Lisa, is in fact expecting a child. So that's fantastic news as well. All right, enough of that studio audience. Quiet, silence. Who let those people in here? Well, you know, they come back occasionally. (laughs) You know, Rod seems to be uh, right up there in the new media world and uh, right up there with all the social media stuff. So I'm sure he'll be grooming the new child in in all the ways of new media and uh, I'm sure a bit of flying as well. In fact, Rod's been pretty busy doing a lot of uh, stuff with the Civil Air Patrol recently. Looks like he's been uh, freezing himself after death up there at some camp they've been doing. Good luck to that. Mm. I mean, the good thing about cold, crisp air, your aircraft leaps off the ground. Oh, there you go. Yeah, great density altitude or density height as we call it here in Australia. You know, I've never got out of that uh, that habit, Owen, of calling it density altitude. Yeah, well, to each their own. They, you know, they calibrate their airspeed indicators differently too, so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but hey, let's face it, if you're uh, flying in ice and snow, you, there's probably something pretty dense about you, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it can get too cold, can't it? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, interestingly, mate, um, I, I actually noticed uh, this when I was uh, flying out of Oshkosh with uh, Milford from Flight Time Radio. Um, looks like they're using metric system for their uh, the Q&H now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's that's okay. As biggest battle yeah. really is to get the world uh all on one page, but you, you fly up to Europe and you, you go through areas where you, you're setting it in metres and then you're back into feet and it's all over the place. So IKO's got its plate full, I think, trying to get everything standardised globally. <laughs> yeah, especially when uh, when you get the comments from the US going, why do we have to change? You guys changed to be like us. We were the first. <laughs> and it's like, well, actually, yeah, you may be the first, but uh, now there's more of us outside the US. <laughs> Let's not get David Vanderhoof started again about, uh, you know, being the first and having cameras and all that sort of stuff. You know, Grant, I think he's been picking on you a lot recently over there on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Yeah, well, you know, it's 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 the whole thing of uh, oh, we're now going to call that a McCarran, which is <laughs> it's, it's something that happens that uh, everyone claims occurred but without <laughs> photographic evidence so no one believes a word of it. Now, that reminds me, I want to mention out to our listener uh, Cam Buntu there on Twitter. I don't think we should reveal his real name, even though we know who you are, Cam Buntu. He's been uh, engaging a number of us, including Grant and Pilot Kelly and a few other people there on Twitter, taking uh, some photos of various parts of, of aircraft and asking what they were. Now, in my defence, Grant, they were picking on me. He asked me what a particular part of the aircraft was, and I said it was a red sticky Audi bit. Yeah, and did I get it right or what? Yes, I did get it right. It's the tail skid, except now we're referring to it as the Visher. Yes, there you go. So there you go, Owen. You better put that in the pilot's manual for the 737, I think. <laughs> yeah, as long as it hasn't got any paint scraped off it, it's all right. <laughs> oh, no, that's that's when you quick deploy the Visher. I'm going to do a Visher. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's nice. That's, Neither of you two have seen me land, so I don't know how you could even suggest such a thing. And besides, they don't have them on Cessnas as far as I know. Yeah, well, I'm the one who has the Falcon 124 code as my handle. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so uh, yeah, big shout out there to Cam Buntu. He, um, I think he's enjoying uh, providing all those uh, those little quizzes on Twitter each day for us. So if you want to join in the fun there and, uh, you know, in fact, uh, he had one just the other day, which I called a black windy thing. And once again, I was correct. Uh, yes, and I got it right as well. It does open the side windows on the cockpit. Yes, but it, but it was black and it does wind. I mean, you true, know, true. I'm just saying. So, Owen, how do I actually apply for a job in the airlines? <laughs> 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 Let's not go there. We could be here or not. <laughs> 
Well, I reckon that just about brings the show to a close. I think just a couple of other quick things that we need to mention, Grant, and uh, one of them is, of course, now, if you've ever sent an email or had anything to do with either of us here at Playing Crazy Down Under, you may have noticed that we've started a mailing list and um, we took the liberty of putting all of you in it. So we sent out our first newsletter just the other day. We certainly hope we didn't annoy too many of you with it, but uh, yeah, we we hope that uh, you don't unsubscribe, but we'll understand if you do. But uh, the idea of that is just to help to keep you updated on uh, things that we're doing, where we might be, if you'd like to catch up for a bit of a meetup, and of course, uh, a list of our show notes from our most recent episode. So uh, you have a look in your uh, email inboxes and uh, have a look at the mail out that we've done and uh, let us know what you think of it. We certainly hope you find it informative, but uh, yeah, as I said, there's plenty of unsubscribe links there if uh, if you want to uh, drop off the list, but we hope you don't. <laughs> oh, a couple of people have, but that's mostly the ones that we had subscribed under three or four email addresses because yeah, they were with right. us multiple different ways. But um, if you want to join the mailing list, if you haven't received that and you want to join, go to our Facebook page and on the left-hand side and amongst all the list of links like uh, wall photos, info and so on. There'll be one saying join our mailing list and we'll be putting it on the homepage of our website pretty soon as well. And the other thing we uh, wanted to mention just a couple of events coming up uh, air show wise uh, down here in Victoria coming up on March 4th is the Tyab air show. Uh, Grant we're going to uh, head off there in, in one form or another and uh, take some recorders down and uh, hopefully get a little bit of video and uh, hopefully some audio as well. That's on March 4th and you can find out more about that at tyabairshow.com.au. They usually put on uh, quite a good little show down there at the Peninsula Aero Club. Uh, I'm definitely looking forward to going to it. I've missed a couple of them. So I'll be looking forward to that. The good thing about Tyab is it's only about 25 minutes drive from my place. So I'll definitely be down there. And uh, your luck. Yep. And of course, the other big event coming up uh, on April 6th and 7th up there at Tamora is Natfly. Yes, it's already that time of year. Natfly is rolling around again. Uh, Grant and I are uh, hoping to take the mobile studio up there again uh, like we did last year. We're getting a little bit better at doing this mobile studio things. The Natfly that we went to last year was our first experiment with it, but uh, we're certainly going to be up there this year. We're very, very pleased with the response that we got to the last show that we did at Natfly. In fact, the downloads were uh, significantly higher than any of our normal shows. So, uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to getting up there and uh, having some fun up there at Tomorrow again. Indeed, mate. Indeed. Looking forward to it. It's a great place to go. And last time I was up there, I had a great flight in a gyrocopter. So I'm looking to looking forward to doing that again. And don't forget, one last thing, mate. Uh, don't forget, folks, as we mentioned earlier in the show, the Seaplane Association are having a splash in at Lake Boga on April 21st and 22nd. Yep, absolutely. I'll tell you what, it was nice up there at Lake Boga. I wouldn't mind going and staying up there, uh, even if there wasn't a seaplane base. Oh, mate, you know, I've been up there flying balloons in Mildura, so next time, maybe if I've got some spare moments, I'll zap across and check it out. Well, of course, I should mention that on the trip back from uh, Lake Boga, the, the good old trusty or once trusty PCDU mobile actually broke down, so <laughs> that sort of <laughs> put a bit of a bummer on that trip, so uh, that should bring us to uh, advertising. If you'd like to advertise about <laughs> shows and support the PCDU mobile, uh, we'd certainly welcome uh, people, uh, you know, making inquiries there. We're going to do a big push for that this year and look for some new sponsors. Uh, we really appreciate the people last year that uh, supported us here on the show so uh, particularly for shows like Netfly where we do special events like that uh, they certainly do get uh, quite significantly higher exposure than our normal shows and uh, we think uh, with our advertising rates that uh, represents some good value particularly when you're talking to uh, industry specific listeners uh, a real niche audience as we have here on PCDU so uh, if you're interested in uh, sponsoring any of our special shows I guess Netfly would be the next one uh, certainly drop us a line here playing crazy down under at gmail.com we welcome all inquiries don't we Grant give you more work to do load Grant up give him more to do and he's a happy 
Boy, maybe. <laughs> there you go. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, enough of those shameless plugs. Owen, uh, mate, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time. I know, uh, obviously, you're very, very busy, and uh, I'm sure you get some time to fly 737s in between all of that stuff. But, uh, mate, we really appreciate you uh, spending some time with us here on this episode tonight. No, it's always fun, guys. It is. And I think it's great what you do. You um, open up aviation to everyone. And I know I was at a barbecue the other day, actually, and there was a, a fellow airline pilot there, and he said to me, but listen to this podcast. He said, I heard you. Name mentioned, he said, it sort of reinvigorated my interest in flying the small aircraft again. So you've got a far reach, I can tell you that. Oh, she whiz. That's wow, wonderful. That's, that's our seventh listener. This is awesome. He's not really. Uh, he's six. He was the sixth. Oh, he's not related oh, yeah. to me either, so I like that. <laughs> that's awesome mate once again owensup.com folks get over there and also uh, owensup author on Facebook now he said he's only got 55 listeners as we record that we want to see let's see what do we reckon let's do something conservative we want to see 555 likes of that webpage actually that's more than we've got on ours okay let's make it 455 <laughs> let's go to 300 <laughs> let's try for 300 well, we're here two two of course uh, we know that most of our listeners are on Facebook and it, uh, it is a great way to catch up but uh, for those of you that are not and then we're sure there's one or two of you around uh, yeah, get over and check out Owens website at owensup.com. Owen, we'll catch you again very soon, we hope. That sounds good, guys. I, I look forward to it. Thanks very much for listening, folks. And as always, we certainly hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. But until then, I'll tell you what, if you're out there flying, always remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. The kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. And uh, there's a great way to combine aviation with boating. Boat there. Sorry. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. We really need to replace that router, dude. Yeah, no, I've got some. I've got. I've got one in order. <laughs> it's like ah. <laughs> oh no. Totally. Hello. Hello. Sorry. Sorry about that, mate. That's okay. I thought it was me. No, no, it wasn't you. No, it's, I've got a, a faulty um, wireless router here, and I've got a new one in order. But typical Telstra, it should be here by about 2017, I think. <laughs> that soon. Yeah, that soon. You must have you on rush. 
<laughs> well, you know, they're all about service there at Telstra. Yeah, they're all about trying to find out how to do service, yes. Yeah. That sounds great. I'll be here. Excellent. He says in his big radio voice. Yes, yes. Steve doing the Segway cutover. I may re-record some of that. Very likely. <laughs> and we'll be putting it on the homepage of our website pretty soon as well. Yeah. Well, in fact, it's already there. It's just hidden in the About Us menu. Ah, right. That was where it was. Okay. <laughs> I was hunting for it the other day. <laughs> the zinger. <laughs> you didn't hear my phone ringing in the background, did you? Not offhand. Nah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't hit that mute button quick enough. Fast enough. <laughs> Okay, that should sign that bit off. What do you reckon? I reckon that's pretty good. Happy. Sounds good. Yep. Okay, recorder off.